Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and a Blissful Life. And the subtitle is How Often Are You Full of Bliss? Now, to introduce this, the important question we have to face is, what is the true nature of man? Is he or she inherently blissful? Is it possible to enjoy constant bliss, or is it all momentary? Is bliss subject to time and circumstance, or is it independent? Is there actually something called misery, or is it all imagined, conjured up in the mind, and essentially unreal? The dominant belief is that it is not possible to be blissful all the time, that misery is part of life, and that circumstances determine whether we are blissful or not. Believing this, we accept misery, and accepting it, we experience it. We find we cannot avoid moments of misery, and misery seems to have a persistence about it, presenting itself again and again despite our best efforts. Because of this, we believe in misery, but not in bliss. If somebody says that they are blissful, we doubt them. If somebody says they are miserable, we unreservedly believe them. The moments of bliss seem to be uncaused. We don't understand sometimes why we are blissful, so we cannot make it happen. And when we do experience bliss, we seem unable to retain it. So what is the truth of the matter? The Shankaracharya, the man whom the school put all its questions to, he said, the fact is that the self, i.e. your true self, is blissful by its own nature. Bliss is not a product of action and its result. And elsewhere he says, joy without an object is bliss, which exists by itself. It is never caused, and that is the reason why it has no object from which it could arise. It is universal and ever-present. So accepting this, this means that we are not possessors of bliss. It is not an attribute of ours. We are bliss. It is our very nature, and being our very nature, we are never not blissful. To be not blissful, we would have to not exist, and our existence we cannot deny. So how does this relate to our experience? The mind enjoys choice or freedom. And exercising this choice under wisdom, bliss is experienced constantly. Under ignorance, misery is experienced. The mind imbued with wisdom reflects our true nature. Devoid of or limited in wisdom, it forgoes the experience of our true nature. The bliss is actually there, but remains unavailed of or unexperienced. It is like having a lot of money in our bank account, but the ATM machine is faulty and we cannot access it. Likewise, the mind machine, faulty through ignorance, cannot access the bliss which we truly are. Again, as the Shankaracharya says, when impediments, i.e. ignorance, are cleared, then direct experience of bliss becomes a reality. 
it is very peaceful and there is no obvious reason for it. It simply glows and does not move. Now, in order to really get to grips with this subject matter, we have to look at three words which we ordinarily use. Pleasure, happiness and bliss. And I'm going to use them in a particular, or with a particular meaning, so that we can differentiate between happiness and bliss. So, start off with pleasure. Pleasure is to do with sensation. It is achieved through the body. It is momentary and must pass. Because pleasure arises in the world of duality, pleasure must be followed by pain and vice versa. The pleasure of a meal is followed by hunger. Lying on in bed, while initially pleasurable, is ultimately painful. If some of you haven't experienced that, just lie on a bit longer. Right. Pleasure only arises within a certain range of sensations. Below the range, there's no experience. And beyond the range, there is pain. So if you take the decibel level of music, Below a certain level, we don't experience the music at all. At too high a decibel level, no matter how beautiful the music is, it causes pain. The experience does not yield lasting satisfaction because it arises from the transient. It does not yield full satisfaction because it arises from the limited. If there is an attempt to give full satisfaction by more of the same, i.e. beyond a true measure, then one simply gets pain. So if you adore strawberries, and you say, I think I'll have them for breakfast, and I'll also have them for my mid-morning break, and I'll have them for lunch, and I'll have them with afternoon tea, and I'll have them at night, and I just have a few before I put my head down on the pillow. After a while, you'll be sick to death of strawberries. There's a certain measure which yields pleasure, and beyond that measure, it, they're simply painful. Pleasure, in fact, can be seen as the relief from pain. The pleasure of food is the relief from hunger. If we wish to really enjoy our food, then we should be hungry before we eat. Now, pleasure is dependent on an object and the state of the body. So when you're ill, no food attracts even if the food is attractive in itself, but the illness of the body won't allow you to experience the pleasure. Pleasure is titillation for the body. It binds one to the body, setting up a seeking for more and more. The same pleasure, however, becomes boring, and one seeks new and ever-increasing exotic variations. So nowadays, in an attempt to get pleasure from the food, we fly food in from every corner of the world. Pleasure in measure is good for the body, but does not fulfill a human being. Now, let's turn to happiness. While pleasure is physical, happiness is psychological. Being part of the creation, it is also part of duality. It has its opposite, sorrow, and they come in never-ending rotation. Happiness is dependent on time, circumstance, and others. If the presence of a loved husband or wife brings happiness, their absence must then necessarily bring sorrow. Happiness is dependent on the fulfillment of psychological needs. 
So if success or being loved or power, etc., are needs in our minds, then we experience happiness when we get them. The creation has to fulfill our psychological needs or else we're miserable. Thus it is a state of dependency and being dependent there is a fear of our happiness passing. And knowing that it will pass we fear becoming too happy or too dependent. So we try to retain some independence from that on which we are dependent. And as a result, we do not enjoy full relationship, but maintain independence or separation for safety's sake. We do not allow ourselves to become too happy, because it then might pass, and the misery will be equal to the happiness. And this is an unbreakable law. It's a very depressing law now, but it's an unbreakable law. Whatever amount of happiness something yields, its loss yields equal misery. It is perfectly balanced. And since everything is transient and therefore subject to change, our happiness is transient and subject to change. The ideas which dominated our minds when we were teenagers no longer operate. The loud music, late nights and excessive drinking now seem to offer misery as opposed to happiness. Spouses, jobs, etc., which once offered happiness, at worst may now offer misery. And what yields happiness, being psychological, changes with the mind, and the mind is ever-changing. As with pleasure, because the mind is always changing, and its psychological needs are limited, then there is not full satisfaction. The mind wants more and more, ever believing that more of the same will yield the sought-after satisfaction. And when it gets what it wants, it just wants more. Or it becomes bored with it, or it finds it's not what it really wanted, or it then believes that happiness lives in the opposite. And there's a story about a rich man who befriends a tramp who sleeps every night on a park bench in Hyde Park. And the rich man engages in conversation with him. And he wonders, he says, how can you sleep at night on that hard bench? And the tramp says, I sleep beautifully every night because every night I dream that I'm sleeping in the Ritz. So the rich man is moved by this and he decides what he'll do is he will treat the tramp to a night in the Ritz. So he organizes this and the tramp spends the night in the Ritz and the rich man meets up him the next day and he says, how did you sleep? He said, terribly. I dreamt all night I was sleeping on a park bench in Hyde Park. <laughs> now that's the way it is. When you're sleeping on a park bench, you dream you're in the Ritz. When you're in the Ritz, you dream you're on a park bench. The mind is always hankering for the new, because the already known is not yielding full happiness. Seeking something new, it yearns for the future. And dissatisfied now, it also reminisces about the past. 
but memory and anticipation equally do not satisfy. The mental world is the dream world and dream food does not satisfy. Dream food cannot satisfy real hunger. The mental world is full of desires and desires satisfied do not go away. They subside temporarily but then return even stronger. Desires contain within themselves the wish to repeat the experience, but now no longer fresh or new, it needs to be bigger or varied. So it's like a person starting off with hash and then ending up needing heroin to get any pleasure at all. Desires can never be satisfied. They grow on being fed and simply increase, generating the feeling that we lack something. Desires, because they are varied and in conflict with each other, drag us in different directions. So we end up with a life of contradictions. One desire is for a slim body, and another is for more food. And because of the dependency on others for our happiness, we use others so that we may be happy. And it is perhaps the most immoral act of all to use another person for one's own happiness. Now the third word, bliss, this is totally different from pleasure or happiness. It is not psychological and it is not physiological. It is our very nature. It's not a possession, not dependent on time and circumstance, does not begin nor end, come or go, it's not transient nor limited, it is uncaused, eternal, ever-present, and is our very substance. And if you would agree to stop being miserable now, you would be blissful. You can try it. Pleasure and happiness can be measured. We may enjoy a lot of pleasure or happiness but we cannot enjoy a lot of bliss. This is because it is limitless. It is qualitative rather than quantitative. Pleasure is the relief from pain, happiness the relief from sorrow, but bliss is not the relief from anything. It stands by itself. It is our very self. And bliss releases the bond with the physical and the mental. So it sets a man free. Pleasure and happiness bind us to the world and bliss transports us out of the world into another world, the real world. In bliss, nothing matters. The presence of pain will not override bliss. We often think that if there is severe pain, how could there be bliss? Well, if we look at it in a different context, does pain negate love? Is it possible for there to be pain in the body and yet love in the heart? And obviously, it's either within our own experience or we know people who have pain in their bodies and yet still love. And just as pain cannot negate love, it cannot negate bliss. Nothing can negate bliss. It is supreme and it is our birthright. 
Pleasure reflects the animal in man, happiness the human, and bliss the divine. Bliss is spiritual. It has nothing to do with anything outside of us. It is internal where there is peace, freedom, love, and understanding. And bliss is therefore not peripheral, but the very essence of who we are. When it prevails, the ego is no longer present. There is just pure being. We have disappeared, in effect, and there is that silence and contentment which is not of this world. Now the question we have to face is, how do we create misery? If we are bliss, this is what the wise say, how do we create misery? And the first thing to appreciate is that we create all our misery. God did not create misery, the devil did not create it, other people or events do not create misery for us. We are solely responsible. Let us ask ourselves, is there a single misery for which we are not responsible? Whether it be worry, anger, jealousy, grief, dissatisfaction, something in us is creating the misery. Change that and the misery can no longer exist. And we should ask ourselves, in what ways do we create misery for ourselves? Wanting things or people to be different, demanding the creation unfolds in accordance with our desires, that our coffee be stronger or hotter, that we be paid more, that the car starts, that there is a car park space, and that our tie does not get stained. Being what we do not want to be and doing something we do not want to do and being with someone we do not want to be with all these create misery for us. Sartre said that hell is other people. It shows you what a happy sort of guy he was. All right? That hell is other people. But the truth of the matter is that hell is me. Because only with the creation of me is there the experience of others. Hell is separation, isolation from our true self, separation from the all. So Sartre is wrong because nobody else makes us angry. Nobody else makes us miserable. To be miserable is a decision on our part and not the effect of other people's actions. Egoism, the false belief in my own separate existence as a body-mind-heart amalgam, is the sole source of misery. And this is why at night time, when you go into deep sleep, you never suffer any misery. It's not because everybody else has disappeared, it's because you have disappeared. So in deep sleep, the ego subsides and there is bliss. My true self is the sole source of bliss. The more the egoism, the greater the misery. Misery separates us from everybody else, and it is separation which makes us miserable. Separation and misery are two sides of the one coin. When we laugh, the whole world laughs with us. 
And when we cry, we cry alone. When we are miserable, we are absolutely conscious of our separate existence. Miserable old me. When we are happy, we forget ourselves. When we are miserable, we want to be alone. Please leave me alone. Suicide is the desire for ultimate aloneness. To go where no one else can follow. Whereas when we are happy, we want to share. When there is bliss, as was said before, there is no ego, just presence. And when there is misery, there is always ego. We cannot forget, particularly all the disappointments, insults and humiliations. Not only are they not forgotten, they are carefully stored so they can be dug up again. Stored in memory, they become inaccurate and tend to be exaggerated. And since the ego is partial and prejudiced, it then ensures that the moments of misery cover over the moments of happiness so that we even forget our happy moments. The ego is the father of all lies. It will tell us that to be miserable is natural, that it is natural to grieve, to take offense, to be hurt when others leave us. And having our justification, we can then wallow in it. It is we who jump into the cesspit of misery. In truth, misery has no justification. Now, because of me, this ego, there are others. And because of me and others, there's comparison. And because of comparison, there is greed and envy and jealousy and ambition. We no longer are ourselves. We need to be better than others. Life for the ego is ever-changing. It is ever-changing because it is made up of the ever-changing, i.e. the body, mind and heart. If this job or woman does not make me full of blips, perhaps another will. And we can only pursue bliss when we have not got it, i.e. when we're miserable. Because we can only desire what we have not got. The desire for happiness or bliss, the pursuit of it, is the misery. Those who are miserable pursuing bliss can never find it. How could the miserable ever find bliss? They would not recognize it. Only when we are blissful will we recognize it. And here's the conundrum. When we are blissful, it is then that we will stop pursuing it. Despite our pursuit, bliss is not running away from us. It is not a matter of pursuing faster or more or somewhere else in something else. Try looking for bliss 
and we are sure to miss it. It is actually a matter of stopping, of simply being blissful rather than chasing it. Seeking bliss outside of ourselves, we seek it in money, power and prestige. And this makes us cunning. And in our cunning, we lose our innocence. And losing our innocence, we can no longer enter the kingdom of heaven like the child. Outside the kingdom of heaven, we suffer misery. Nobody wants to be miserable. Everybody wants to be blissful, but the wanting is the problem. The child does not want to be blissful. It is blissful and expresses it in everything. Now, why does the desire for bliss create misery? Why does it produce its very opposite? Well, firstly, because to desire bliss, we have to deny it in ourselves now. And the denial of ourselves is the most painful thing that we can do in life. Secondly, to desire bliss, to desire anything, we have to look to the future. And to look to the future in this way is to come out of the present moment. And looking to the future, we become ambitious. And then we live in hope or despair, but always in tomorrow. Today is sacrificed for tomorrow. But if we want to live, if we want to be blissful, it is now or never. Being ambitious, our bliss becomes conditional, conditional on achieving something. And since we have yet to achieve, we forget we could be blissful now. Bliss, however, is not an achievement. It is not earned. It is what we are. Bliss is being, and becoming is misery. We cannot become blissful, but we can and do become miserable. So bliss only exists in the present, and to move out of the present is to move out of bliss, i.e. to move into misery. Our projection of the future is based on our current misery, so it contains the seed of misery in it. And containing the seeds of misery in it, it cannot possibly yield bliss, but only future misery. One of the reasons why being busy yields a certain happiness is that the busyness demands that we be in the present moment in order to execute whatever actions we need to execute. Idleness allows the mind to drift to the past and the future, and that is why idleness is so miserable. This is why sometimes the poor enjoy greater happiness than the rich i.e. their situation keeps them busy. Because the ego is so full of misery, we are always seeking to get out of the ego, to appease it, forget it, or transcend it. We sleep too much because then we're free of it. 
We forget it with drink and drugs. We appease it with food and clothes and exotic holidays and fast cars. We lose it in extreme sports, etc. We avoid it with entertainment. Most entertainment is a way of avoiding ourselves because while entertained, we forget our misery, our worry and our fears. Unable to live with ourselves, we need entertainment. And the more miserable we are, the more entertainment we need. Consider how much the world needs to be entertained nowadays. Even a hundred television channels is not enough. The ego is dependent on others for its own fulfillment. Thus it does not enjoy real freedom. And not enjoying real freedom, it denies it to other people. We seek to control others so that we can control our own bliss. We want and seek to make spouse, children, neighbors, employer, employees and friends behave in a way that suits our pursuit of bliss. Unfortunately, they have their own private plans in pursuit of their own bliss and their plans do not accord with ours. Sometimes we cannot stop ourselves just wanting to control others. So the child is not allowed to stay up even if it is not tired. Even if we say yes, we somehow say it with reluctance. Bliss is universal, whereas misery is special. It is unique. Nobody else suffers our misery. So misery makes us special. Initially, it can get people's attention. And so people may sympathize with us and take care of us. Friends visit us and attempt to comfort us. And family are considerate to us. And all this gives a certain satisfaction to the ego in the short term. It shows that we matter. But in the end, if we stay in misery, we are abandoned. Nobody will go to hell with us. You travel alone, as they say. In a way, the things that are causing the misery give some happiness also. Otherwise, we would not hold on to them, but would drop them instantly. For example, someone leaves us, and we cling to the hope that they will return. The hope is our source of misery, but it also yields a certain happiness. We suffer misery now in the hope of future happiness. If it was pure misery, with no perceived benefit, we could not hold on to it. So misery held on to must have a perceived but erroneous benefit. And even if some adversity happens and no misery naturally arises, we can often feel obliged to be miserable. So we cry and weep just to prove to ourselves that we had a great and special love for that person. If we talk about our misery, people are sympathetic to us. And if we love sympathy, then we cannot drop our misery. 
So every kind of misery held on to has some happiness in it which we are not yet ready to drop. Or it has some hope in it which dangles itself in front of us like a carrot. In the Western world, many of us are richer beyond the wildest dreams of previous generations. We are outwardly rich, but inwardly we are in poverty. The words of Jesus are, you are in poverty, you are poverty. Now these are very harsh words, and they're directed to you and me. We have directed all our energies to the improvement of the outer world, but have neglected our inner world. The ego cannot bear to be ignored, so it will create problems out of nothing. It makes mountains out of molehills. For the ego, extraordinary misery is more attractive than ordinary misery i.e. it is more exciting to talk about how we nearly killed ourselves or wrote off the car than it is to say we stubbed our toe or scratched the lawnmower. Do you notice how excited and happy people are when they tell you they nearly killed themselves? <laughs> because for a moment they're important because they nearly died. Anyway. Now the ego itself is empty and meaningless. Therefore it presents an image to us that our lives are empty and meaningless. So it tells us that there must be more. Not how much more, but just more. In fact, forevermore. So that there's never any rest with what we have. If we want to be miserable, then simply want more. And this is a choice of ours. Nobody is forcing us to want more. The Western world has never had so much, and yet it has never demanded more so much. The greater the demand for more, the greater the experience of meaninglessness in our lives. And when the ego dominates the life, the mind is a misery-generating machine. It will always find something to be unhappy about. What is good from the past, we wish to repeat again and again. Our image of the future is the past repeated, but better, less painful, more pleasant, and definitely more. If our desires are not fulfilled, then we are frustrated. If they are fulfilled, then we are frustrated by the desire for even more of the same. The ego has made bliss conditional when it is, in fact, unconditional. It says that when we have this and when that is gone, etc., etc., then we can be blissful. Do you know what would happen if we got everything we desired? So just for a moment, imagine that you got everything that you desired. Would you then be blissful? The answer is no. You'd be bored. That is the outcome of getting everything that you desire. Eternal boredom. Because our happiness is dependent, it is fragile. It can be taken away from us at any time. 
The spouse can die or leave. The job can end. The stock market can crash. A small change and everything has changed for us. And the ego, being the product of ignorance, can only produce a happiness born of ignorance. So the ego is burdened. It's like a man carrying a heavy knapsack. When he puts it down, he experiences a sense of relief, which he calls happiness. But soon he picks up another knapsack full of different goodies. And this is the life for the ego. It keeps changing the knapsack in the form of another woman, another job, etc., etc. In the belief that something or somebody out there will ultimately bring it the bliss which it craves for. The ego, however, is like a balloon. No matter how big you make it, it is empty or all hot air on the inside. Now, if the ego cannot conjure up personal problems, so sometimes you examine your life and you can't find a problem to be miserable about. Now, if it can't do it, then it dwells on universal problems. The poverty of Africa, global warming, the AIDS crisis. The mind feeds itself on considering problems which it cannot or does not do anything about, because that keeps it all alive. Events which are incomplete in our lives live on as dreams, daydreams or night dreams. And because our lives are so incomplete, we spend a lot of the day daydreaming. All of this involvement in the ego and its maintenance causes us to forget our true selves. We are no longer ourselves. We forget the true values of life. We sell our inner world for the outer world the eternal world for the transient world, the limitless world for the limited world. We have sold the pearl of great price and abandoned our birthright. Now, it would be pretty miserable to end the talk there, and since that would be completely and utterly unfair, we shall continue. Now, so the next question we face which is the homeward turn, as they say, how may we grow in bliss? Now, everybody wants to be blissful. They want it permanently and limitlessly. Why is this so? Why do we not have to be told or encouraged or bribed to seek bliss? Well, the reason is because it is our very nature. Nature demands that it fulfill itself. So we go in search of bliss. In fact, we're searching for our true selves. The truth is, we cannot grow in bliss, but we can eliminate the misery that has been created. Then, just as the sun appears from behind the clouds, the bliss, which was always there, becomes experienced, i.e. a living reality for us. The first thing to, for us to remember is that the ego is fundamentally a negative phenomenon. Our true self is light and bliss, and the ego is like darkness. Darkness has no real existence. It is simply the absence of light. Light, however, does have real existence. 
So that which has no real existence should not be battled with. It's like fighting a shadow. So we do not fight the ego. We simply bring the light to bear on the situation and the darkness is banished of itself. Now, what can assist us? Well, the first thing is detachment. Again, the Shankaracharya says, if the activities are performed in the true knowledge of this being a mere play, the gain is twofold, for it bestows peace and bliss. The loss of this true knowledge during activity results in loss both of peace and bliss. It rather ends in misery, attachments, and agitation. So the key factor is detachment. Now, not detachment in the sense of coldness, but true detachment. My true self is the witnessing consciousness which is present here, right now. It is aware, but not involved. Being conscious, it is the knower of the known. And it is positively detached from things and activities known. Again, the Shankaracharya says, it is better to keep it like that and allow all mechanical tools, i.e. the body, mind and heart, to perform the activities of the play efficiently while the observer remains detached. This is the key to the philosophy of a Dwighta Vedanta, which is the philosophy of the school. To remain as the witness and not become the doer. The Shankaracharya says the vision of this philosophy is the retention of this true knowledge about the knower and the known. And then allowing the full power of consciousness to be used in all activities. He says the outcome of this is the activities of the drama with detachment will be better. Devoid of miseries of doing. Peace and bliss will be the gain. And proof of the practical application of a Dwighter arises from the fact that both during and upon completion of activities, peace and bliss follow without discontinuity. The second factor is measure. A measured life keeps away miseries and troubles. If the body, mind and heart are used according to true measure, then they function well and happily, just like a serviced car driven appropriately. So there should be a disciplined approach to life. Discipline or measure with regard to use of body, mind and heart. Again, the Shankaracharya says, discipline keeps on providing bliss. Works of the world, when properly done, also provide bliss. And discipline does help us to do everything well. Thirdly, we should look inwards. Because bliss is our innermost nature, we should look inwards to find it. Man's misery is because he is looking outside for what is inside. By looking outside all the time, the world distracts us from our true selves. So meditate, contemplate, reflect, pray within, and we will find the ocean of bliss. 
Happiness which turns into unhappiness is not what we are seeking. So seek the eternal and seek it within. Fourthly, treat everybody as yourself. Do not seek bliss at the expense of anybody else's bliss. This is inhuman behavior. Do not use others as the means to our bliss. This is simply exploitation. Abandon comparison. You are unique. Nobody else is like you. So there is no basis for comparison. Only the dead are alike. Living people are unique. With that, we will find that jealousy, envy, etc. will dissolve, i.e. when we treat other people as ourselves. Fifthly, be content. Be content with what we have. Do not be a beggar for more. Ask ourselves, why do we want more? What is the basis for it? So why do you want more than you have? With what certainty do we know that this will yield lasting satisfaction? Asking for more is what makes life feel meaningless and empty. And stop pursuing bliss. Practice being content now, being blissful now. And this is the direct route, always now, not at the weekend, or on our holidays, or when this or that happens, but now. So stop seeking, stop becoming, and just be blissful. Bliss is always with us, and stop trying to find it somewhere else. Sixthly, stop creating misery. Acknowledge total responsibility for our own misery. Acknowledge that we are the creators of it. Examine and discover how we create it for ourselves. Ask ourselves at any moment, why am I miserable now? Find the causes of our misery. We each have our own ways of creating misery. Understanding our responsibility and how we do it specifically, then we can stop it. If we want to remove the misery, we must remove the cause. It makes no sense to continue. If misery arises, ask ourselves, can I change the way I feel about this? It's a very good question to ask. If you think that something is making you miserable, at that point in time, ask yourself, can I change the way I feel about this? And the answer is always yes. You can always change the way you feel about something. It is man's great freedom and we should exercise it continuously. Why are we so reluctant to let go that which is causing us misery? And the reason is because we are not yet convinced that it only causes us misery, i.e. that it is without any benefit for us. We believe there is some benefit to holding on. Dropping it is a matter of understanding 
not some great effort. Sometimes people say, I just can't stop being miserable, as if it would require a great effort. It's simply not true. It's a matter of understanding. When you understand it, you drop it on the instant. Seventhly, be here now. Live in the present. Misery arises only when the mind drifts to the past or the future. Misery does not exist now because only bliss exists in the now. And you can try this right now if you want to. So just come into the present moment and try to be miserable right now. You can't do it right now. You can't actually become miserable right now. However good we are at creating misery, whatever expertise we have developed in our lives, we cannot create misery this very moment. So live in this very moment. Stop feeding our desires. They are based on the past and they drag us into the future. Life only feels empty because there are unfulfilled desires. So drop the desires and life is full. When desires disappear, then we are full of bliss. In the present moment, the ego does not exist and therefore it does not operate. So fully engage with the present moment. Give ourselves fully and unconditionally to what is in hand. And whenever we are totally into something, then we are blissful in that moment. When anybody gives themselves unreservedly to an action, then they disappear. And only when we, the ego, disappear, will the true we enjoy bliss. We will no longer be in control because only the ego controls. And this is a very important point. Controlled bliss is no bliss. So if we want to be in control, then we will not be blissful. Don't seek to be master. Let bliss take us, envelop us, and drown us in it. So surrender to it. Lastly, Drop your identity. In the Gospel of St. Thomas it says that when the two become one, then shall you enter the kingdom of heaven. So who are the two? Well, the two are me and everybody else or everything else. When me is dropped, then there is no basis for separation. There is nobody to be miserable. And with unity, the experience is bliss. To be blissful, we need to understand we are not the ego. And when we realize this, then all need for others and objects disappear. All dependency goes from our lives. There is freedom, self-reliance, and bliss. And then nobody can make us miserable. The ego desires attention and we need to drop this desire, the desire for getting sympathy from other people, because it turns us into beggars, 
begging the substance or presence of others. It is the equivalent of being a vampire. We are feeding off others. When we drop the ego, then we have no needs, but are actually complete in ourselves. Now to conclude, bliss is to enter into your own self. Then we will see that all our pleasures and happiness are simply the stuff that dreams are made of. Pleasure and happiness are time-bound, transient, limited, require effort, and are difficult to achieve. Bliss is eternal, real, effortless, and naturally available. It is not an achievement, but a realization of what is ever-present. When we drop pleasure and happiness as the gods of our lives, then we will enjoy bliss. Bliss is freedom. It grants freedom because, as was said before, bliss cannot be controlled. It is not possible to control the person full of bliss. When full of bliss, you will dance in the street and skip in the rain. The loneliness of misery is transformed into the aloneness of bliss. There is nothing for us to do to be blissful, so just let go and go with the flow. Decide that misery is not natural and not necessary. And do not sympathize with other people's misery. Teach them to come out of it. Decide now that you are perfect and that there is nothing missing. The Shankaracharya says that the Absolute has intended no deprivation. So live blissfully as we were intended to live. Bliss is a state of transcendence. We transcend the body, mind and heart. And when the body is in perfect health, we forget that it's even there. We are aware of it only when it is ill. When we are pervaded by bliss, we will forget the body, mind and heart and they will no longer limit us. Now bliss is not a very, very, very happy state. It is not a state at all. It is not extreme excitement because with bliss there is equilibrium, peace, silence and completeness. Bliss is forever and happiness is temporary. Happiness is caused and dependent. Bliss is uncaused and independent. It is not an outcome and cannot be related to anything. Nobody else experiences our pleasure. Happiness can be retained to oneself, but bliss has to be shared. The individual cannot contain it, so it overflows and envelops everybody. Others are transformed by our bliss. And when there is bliss, there is love, because they are inseparable. The sharing of our bliss is love. Without bliss, we do not really love, but seek others to make us happy. 
With bliss, one simply loves everybody. One loves friends and one loves enemies. When we are blissful, we wish to see everyone blissful without exception. With bliss, we are empty. Empty of the ego, but full of our true self. So I'm going to just finish with some words of the Shankaracharya in a book called Good Company. And this is what he says. The absolute is truth, consciousness and bliss. The creation is for bliss. It is a play and the play is only for enjoyment. Human beings are also the absolute and include everything the absolute has. Men are self-truthful, self-consciousful and self-blissful. The absolute creates and enjoys without getting involved, only as a witness. But man prefers to enjoy as a doer and not as a witness. This claim is followed by the duality of wanted and got. All this binds man in little boundaries and little boundaries give him only little bliss. The self being the absolute could not be satisfied with such little bliss and this is why there is a constant search for more bliss, more truth and more consciousness. The search makes men overactive and run amok which is followed by troubles, anxieties, conflicts and discomfort. And the real purpose is thus completely lost. Only if men could see that they have nothing to do, nothing to claim and nothing to achieve in this already complete and blissful creation, they would begin to enjoy and also fulfill the purpose. So let us begin to fulfill the purpose of our lives and be blissful. And that's it. Are we happy to start again? So, what blissful questions do you have? Yes. Thank you very much, Mr. Hall. Very interesting. Right, good. There. I'm still left with one question. I'm still trying to figure out what is bliss. Right. I'm not saying that in a facetious manner. No, I understand. Um, at least you have identified tonight that it's not happiness, it's not pleasure, it's not enjoyment, it's not peace. Yes. So all of that has been very helpful. But I was still trying to go a step further and ask myself, well, what is it? And then I began to wonder, you know, is it the same as being? Is it the same as realizing that we are the absolute? Yes. Is that what bliss actually is? That's question one. And perhaps I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> so you lied when you said you had only one question. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I take that first question and then we'll see what happens. In a way, it is not possible to define bliss because in defining it, you have to limit it. You have to turn it into a concept. And when you turn it into a concept, then it is not bliss. It is simply a concept of bliss.
That's why it is not possible to define love. Being limitless and being beyond the mind, it's not possible to conceive of it. So it's exactly the same with bliss. The only way you'll ever know what bliss is, is when you are blissful. Then you will know. Just like you know when you are in love. When there's love in your heart, you know it. You may not be able to define it, explain it, you know, have a great big sentence enumerating all its qualities, but you will know there is love in your heart. And when you are filled with bliss, you will know it. What you can do, you can say what it is not, and you can also point to it. There are the two possibilities. You can say it's not pleasure, so it's not a sensation, it's not titillation. So you can say lots of things what it's not, and that's a bit like peeling the onion. You know, you get rid of all the outer layers, and you are brought closer to what it is. The other thing is you can simply indicate some of its qualities, which are not the thing itself. So I can say to you, like, a mango is juicy. But that's still not what a mango is. It's just one of the qualities of a mango. Bliss is unchanging. If you find something which is unchanging, then it may be bliss. All right? When there is bliss, the mind will be totally and completely at rest. So you can describe certain factors which intimate the presence of bliss. But in the end, you know bliss by becoming <coughs> blissful. All right? So let's stop that. Now, one of the reasons we have difficulty with it is because it's a bit like we don't really understand the great words. Like, we don't understand what love is. When we're young, we sort of get excited about some man or woman. And we think, well, love must be sort of an extra dose of excitement. It must be like real, real excitement. You shower 15 times a day and you, you can't sleep at night and you can see him in the porridge type of thing. You know, he's everywhere. <laughs> anyway, of course, when you're married to him for a while, <laughs> not only do you not want to see him in the porridge, you don't want to see him. <laughs> For example, and I just take the love and then I just move back to this. What Mr. McLaren said, love is cool and reason is warm. Now the interesting thing is, without thinking about it, we would normally reverse those. But if you think, what is the symbol of love in the planetary system? It's the moon. And it's cool. Moon is cool. And what represents reason in the planetary system is the sun. The rise of reason, the rise of the sun. That's why lots of time people are looking for a form of love, which is not love at all. They're looking for some sort of movement. As Mr. McLaren used to refer to it, emotional indigestion. <laughs> and they sort of look for some activity that would prove that they're feeling love. But it's not like that. Love is actually incredibly quiet. We think of happiness, and somebody says, well, bliss is way beyond happiness. So what we do is we conjure up an extreme form of happiness. Again, just to slightly divert, there was a sage called Swami Vivekananda, who was a great sage from India, and he said, we can only think in human terms. That's very obvious. So he said, when the human being thinks of God, he thinks of a superhuman being, like Superman. 
he can do everything and he's really, really, really nice and he loves his enemies and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So what man does, he takes man and then creates a super version of him and that turns out to be God. He says if cats were going to consider what God was like, they would come up with a super cat version. We think of bliss being a super version of happiness. And in fact, it's not the same at all. So again, I'm just going to go back to love because it might give us an indication of it. Sometimes people think that when they start dating, they like somebody. And then they think after another little while, they really like them. And after another while, they really, really, really like them. And then they say, now I love that person. And they think that the like became really like, and eventually the really like converted into love. But really, really, really liking somebody never converts into love. It can turn into obsession or in complete indifference. That's its full range. But love is not where like resides. It's in a different world altogether. So children love you. That's the way it is. Even if you're unlikable. <laughs> they love you. Right? It's nothing to do with like. And it's not a super version of like. So bliss is very quiet. Very quiet. Totally pervades the being. It doesn't agitate the mind. It's not like excitement. Because which would only burn itself out like infatuation would. It's a very quiet state which simply fills the being. And the search is over. Now, I've used this example before, and I'm afraid I have to turn to love. My daughter, my 27-year-old daughter, in her time dated a few men. The smallest number that I could persuade her to date. But anyway, she dated a few men. And occasionally she came back and she would tell me, Oh, Daddy, I love this man. Which used to fill me full of misery. <laughs> I always knew that it wasn't love, even though she would say it was a remarkable degree of intensity. Anyway, one day, about two years ago, she did come to me and she said, I've met the man I'm going to marry. And I knew that she was going to marry. And how I knew was her eyes, because her eyes were at rest, completely at rest. You could see the search was over. When you're still searching, you'll be looking over her shoulder as you're dancing with her. And when you're in love, you won't be searching. You'll be just looking at her. With bliss, the search is over. Children are blissful. You know, say sometimes, say, a child is in a pram and it just looks at you. And it's not trying to be impressive. It's not sort of holding its head to the side. And <laughs> what do you think of my ears? Yeah. Doesn't want anything. It's not asking you to perform, you know, to say goo, goo, goo to it or anything like that at all. It's just being itself. Now, none of those answers are the answer, as I've said. And they can't be. But it would have been impossible for you to have lived your life and not to have known bliss. We actually live by the little droplets of bliss we get every so often. Now, as I said, the mind often forgets these or covers them over. But every so often we get a moment when everything falls away. 
and there are no desires and there are no wants and everything is absolutely fine as it is and nothing special has happened. It's not that you've received a big check or got a promotion or anything or that the weather is particularly beautiful or anything like that at all. But for some reason, there is a sense of completeness in oneself and that is the bliss. And is there a second question then? There is, if I could All frame right, it. <laughs> it's just every time people say that, you know, the absolute has made the creation for our enjoyment, and you referred to it again this evening, yes. and that the absolute looks on things and enjoys them. Again, I just find that extremely difficult as a concept, because again, we can only see things from human terms. But if we look in little events or bigger events, for example, a car accident, and somebody's been cut out of that, yes. a screen with pain, we couldn't say we look in that with any enjoyment and I would find it very difficult to conceive of how absolute or whatever could, in any terms we can understand, look on that as a play with enjoyment. Right. And you can bring that on to what happened yesterday in Virginia, what happened today with 120 people killed in Iraq, and you know, what sort of absolute would this be who could see this type of happening and say, this is a play, this is creation, right. and it's going on like this for my enjoyment. It yes. would be so totally removed from any sense of compassion or love with which we have been endowed that to me that doesn't okay. ever make sense. All right. Okay, absolutely. If we use the mind in a human way, we will not be able to look at what happened in Virginia or Iraq today and without either anguish arising in our hearts or great sympathy and compassion and things like that. But from the point of view of consciousness, it is completely different. Now, I'm just going to use an example of how it is possible to observe the appearance of misery and really enjoy it. So every time you go to a film or you go to a play, there can be the appearance of misery and death and destruction and the good guy dies and the bad guy gets away with it and all that sort of stuff. And you say, that was a fantastic film. Say the Martin Scorsese films, and you know, there's a lot of rough stuff and you know sometimes the mafia get away with it or the gangsters get away with it. we say brilliant absolutely brilliant and we adore it now how do we adore it because we know it's not real that's how we adore it once it's not real we can enjoy tragedy just as much as comedy and if it was all comedy we'd say oh, i wish there was a bit of tragedy every so often and then if there's all tragedy we say be nice a bit of light relief now with some comedy thrown so that's the way it is. We've got it all. We take it to be real. It's very useful not to picture an event which is nothing to do with us, but to take a personal thing and see, well, could I retain bliss in that situation? You take a situation where one does lose one's bliss and see, well, could I have retained bliss? And then we might find that, in fact, the we call it the retention of bliss, it's a very poor way of putting it, is possible in all circumstances. Again, I've told the story before, but it's maybe apposite to this particular uh, question. When I was young, uh, younger, or maybe young, actually, probably more accurate, when I was young, we were on holidays in France, and it was a long holidays, and the one thing about long holidays, it gives you plenty of time to become depressed. <laughs> so anyway, I managed to get depressed, because, first of all, I don't think we could actually afford the holidays, so my mind went to the overdraft, and this was in the early 80s, and I think I owed, I was 30,000 pounds overdrawn, 
and the mind played on this. How was I ever going to repay this money? I, I began to speculate on future income and things like this, and I couldn't see where the income was going to come from after about three or four months into the future, which is a long time, by the way, to be able to see where income is coming from. But anyway, I couldn't see, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to die in, in debt type of thing. And the mind spiraled down into a sort of a dark, depressive state. So I tried everything that was available to me, I eat bottles of wine and all sorts of things, right? Everything like that. Being an experienced philosopher, in the end, I turned to philosophy, having tried wine and all those sort of things. And I started to read a book. Now, I won't go through the story of the book, but in the book, it was proven to a lady who had lost her husband that she was eternal, and the fact that the husband was also eternal. So I read the story with interest. And at the end of the story, I said to myself, Am I eternal? And a resounding answer, with, you know, absolute certainty came back, I was or am eternal. And I said, in the light of the fact that I am eternal, what is a £30,000 overdraft? <laughs> and the answer was nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And the interesting thing is, the cloud completely dissipated. You see, I had become an overdrawn person. Now, an overdrawn person is a miserable entity who turns to wine on his holidays <laughs> to make himself happier. But I'm not an overdrawn person. I am witnessing consciousness. Consciousness can't be overdrawn. You can't overdraw it with anything. But it can witness a body-mind-heart being overdrawn, let's say. It's a bit like being a doctor. Say you go to a doctor, and let's say you've got a pain in the body, and the doctor says to you, can you describe the pain? So what you do is you fully inform the doctor of your pain. So the doctor is fully informed, but he or she does not experience your pain. They are informed, but do not experience. Now, the witnessing consciousness, your true self, is fully informed, but does not experience. It doesn't experience the misery, or the happiness, or the pleasure, or the pain. It is the body that experiences pleasure and pain. It is the heart that experiences happiness and sorrow. It is the mind that experiences clarity and confusion. And the witnessing consciousness, which is love, wisdom, bliss, watches the show and enjoys it all. If we take the show to be real, we have to suffer. And again, I'm just going to take a very simple example that we can all connect with. If I ask you, what is a board game designed for? It's designed for, we call it bliss or happiness. That's why they design them. They don't say, this is how to destroy families in the Western world. <laughs> we'll, we'll invent monopoly and that's bound to break them all up. The creator of monopoly says, here's a way of allowing people to enjoy bliss. If people forget that it's a game, as children often do, well, and, and childish adults <laughs> do, and they have to go to jail, and they have to pay rent, and they lose their house, and all this sort of stuff. 
they can start to scream, he's cheating and it's not fair, and they can desire to cheat themselves and demand a second throw of the dice. In the end, it ends up in misery. Now, it ends up in misery, but did the maker of the game design the game with the intention of misery? The answer is no. The absolute designed the creation with the intention of bliss. But if we, or we, the human form, breaks the rules, then I'm afraid suffering is the outcome. You could say, but why have the suffering? Why not just make it all bliss and rewire the human being so that he can only enjoy bliss? Well, if you did that, then he would not enjoy freedom. He would have no freedom. He would be obligated to be blissful. And you can't be obligated to be blissful. You have to be free to be blissful and free to be miserable. Man is designed with this freedom. Under ignorance, he chooses very poorly, and misery is the outcome. Now, is misery a punishment? Let's say that your body doesn't enjoy curries. And you eat a curry, and you feel pretty awful after. Do you think your body's punishing you? See, <laughs> that'll teach him a lesson to drag me into, you know, the Taj Mahal. Do you think that's what it's doing? No, it's not. It's letting you know. Please avoid eating curries. This is not good for this body. If you ignore it, then it just lets you know again and again and again until you wake up and get the message. Curries are not for this body. So, the suffering of man is not a punishment by some great being. It's not a punishment at all. It's a wake-up call. It's saying, you've forgotten how to be truly happy. Now, if you said to me, well, I think I prefer to have no sorrow in life, and let's make sure we have no pain as well. Might as well get rid of pain as well. How long could the body survive if it couldn't experience pain? Can you imagine how much you would eat? <laughs> how many of us could get into this room? <laughs> what stops us is the pain. Pain makes us take care of the body. It's the intelligence behind the design saying you need to take care of it. Sorrow is telling us you've forgotten how to love. You've forgotten how to be happy. It's a wake-up call. It's not a punishment at all. So one should be extremely grateful for pain because it's advocating some change. It's telling you something is wrong and there's a need for change. Sorrow is exactly the same. Be very grateful for sorrow because it's telling you the heart is being used incorrectly. If it would only be used correctly, it would enjoy bliss. So that's the other way of looking at it. But anyway, if your mind wanders back to, let's say, the 120 dying in Iraq or concentration camps, you never get to grips with this. There's only one way forward, and that is to look at misery in your life. Does that make sense? And not the misery of the parents of the dead people in Virginia. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of you and seeing 
those things where ordinarily I experience misery, can I transcend it and experience bliss? And I just say, my own experience is I haven't met the point where I say, no, it's impossible. I haven't met that point. It seems to me that those things which caused a lot of misery, let's say 10 years ago, no longer cause misery. And with each passing year, or if you want to call it growth of understanding, less and less causes misery. One of the great things that has freed me from misery, to whatever degree I am free of misery, is that I used to have very clear ideas about what made me happy and what made me miserable. I was very convinced by my own arguments that more money, definitely I'll be happier, longer holidays and all these sort of things. But I began to examine all this knowledge. And in the end I realized that I don't know if any change from right now will make me happier or more miserable. I can't say it would be good for Shamal Hall to have more money, to have more free time, to have less ABC. I don't know if I would have been happier if I hadn't married or if there was 27 children or no children. I don't know. That's a fantastic freedom, not knowing. Do you know why the child is so happy in the back seat of the car? Because it doesn't know where it's going. That's why. Imagine if it knew. The reason we're miserable is we know we're going to visit Aunt Nellie. <laughs> who's cut us out of the will. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. And, okay. um, I won't create any more misery uh. for you. <laughs> yes, anybody else? <laughs> Gentlemen, to back down. You mentioned the ego a lot, and I got the impression that you were talking about emptying, the, you did mention emptying oneself of the ego. And I'm wondering, is that possible, or even is it desirable? Yes. Do we not actually need an, an ego in order to survive in the world? I can understand emptying oneself of the tyranny of the ego. Yes, your correction is valid. <laughs> I'm practicing humility, by the way. Now, uh, <laughs> it is not possible to be without an ego, and an ego is essential to manifest in this creation. Once you come into this world, there is a nature or a personality or a temperament. And that is your means of expression. It was the ego, if you put it like this, which would have motivated Mozart towards music. And that was absolutely valid for him. When we talk about removing the ego, it is, as you say, removing the tyranny of the ego or the limitation of the ego. Man, because of an ego, will find that there are certain things in which he can express himself fully. And there are other things he can't. The one-legged man doesn't enter the 100-meter sprint in the Olympics. That's just not for him. There will be something else in which he or she finds their full expression. What happens is, when in philosophy it talks about getting rid of the ego, it would be more accurate, and I shall try and remember in the future, to say it as getting rid of the identification with the ego, the belief that it is me. And again, if I can give a simple example, there are times when, say, a child misbehaves. 
and it needs correction, but you're not annoyed. And you know a part has to be played. So the finger has to wave, and it has to wave quite firmly. You have to get a little glint into your eyes. You say, you must never, ever, ever do that again. But on the inside, you're sort of smiling. Do you recognize that? But the part is played fully. The child is absolutely convinced this is serious. And you manifest seriousness. But on the inside, you're totally light. Now that is, if you want to call it, the use of the ego without being limited by the ego. Thanks very much. Thank you. No yes, anybody else? Yeah, thank you very much, Mr. Malal. No problem. Well, just a couple of points. Yes. Joseph Campbell coined the phrase, follow your bliss. Yes. So in the context of what you're saying here, it's not about following it, but it's about being it. Yes. So following on from that is, you know, the dichotomy of should we just surrender completely to life and be desirelessness, yes. if you like, and not go after our achievements, after our goals, and that sort of thing. Like, where's the, the solution there? Yes, all right. Okay. If there is a solution. Well, absolutely, there is always a solution. I'm just going to take the first bit, and then by that I may have forgotten the second bit, and you'll have to remind me. If we take to follow the bliss, well, following the bliss intimates to me of something external, you know, and I'm sort of trotting off after, behind it. That's not the real nature of bliss. Bliss is within, and it expresses itself. Children don't go searching for happiness. They express it. What we do, by the time we're, say, 18, we are so miserable, we go looking for happiness in particular careers, or in particular relationships. Let's just take a career. You ask people, why did you pick a particular career? And they say, because I thought I would find happiness in that career. Now, you can't find happiness in any career. They don't make careers like that anymore, right? <laughs> there is no happiness. If you look at the specification of the job, it doesn't say bliss provided. It provides you with a desk and a lot of activities. But bliss isn't mentioned anywhere. The key is not to go searching for bliss, but to express bliss in everything. The idea is you start off blissful, not you end up blissful. The child is full of bliss, and that's why it enjoys everything. It brings its bliss out into the rain, the sunshine, the mud, the bath, everything. It brings its bliss everywhere, and it expresses it in everything. And you just watch a child, that's what it's doing all the time. It turns everything into a blissful activity. There's no activity in the bliss itself. It's the child who's bringing it. You know when a child comes up to you and it says, you know, it's a little child, and it's got one of these little plastic tea things, you know, and it says, I'm going to make you a cup of tea. And you say, okay, we'll make it very strong. You know the way I like it strong. So it goes... <laughs> like this. And then you sip and you say, look, it's a bit on the cold side, could you just reheat the kettle? And you play the game, right? And you say, now, don't forget to stir clockwise, because that makes a difference. Now, try playing that game with an adult. <laughs> and it's appalling. You know why? Because the adult is so miserable. <laughs> what? But with a child, she, you would do anything. 
when you come into the city room, the carpet is the Amazon River full of crocodiles. So you move from couch to chair <laughs> so you don't get eaten by the crocodiles. With a person full of bliss, you do anything. So, don't go looking for bliss. Don't follow it. Don't go looking for it. Don't pursue it. Be blissful. Be blissful now. Nothing has to happen. That's the point. I know you don't believe me. <laughs> Nothing has to happen. You are blissful. Stop resisting it. Stop saying, if only this would happen, then I'd be blissful, or if I got rid of the overdraft. Stop putting conditions on it. You are blissful now. Accept it. Surrender to it. Be it. And then express it everywhere. So what does that do with it as regards goals? Goals and all these sort of things are for miserable people. <laughs> and it fools miserable people into the belief that they could become happier if they achieved their goals. And it keeps consultants extremely busy <laughs> because there's no cure. If you want to have a goal in life that you might express your bliss more limitlessly each and every day, let that be your goal. And that's, a, that's a really good goal. That you will discover new ways of expressing bliss every day. Because it is limitless, and therefore there are limitless ways of expressing it. Some people only agree to be blissful when it's sunny. They wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is they look out the window. Oh, it's a miserable day for me. And if it's sunny, they say, okay, I think I'll be happy today. So they agree to be happy, and they refuse to be happy. Now you will find there are aspects to your life in which you deny bliss. Cutting the grass, doing the shopping, picking wallpaper, whatever it is. You'll have a thousand different ways, and you have predetermined that you will be miserable in those situations. Do you recognize that? So what you should do, you should start to pick them off and say, I will be blissful in this situation. And you will be. My father did it to me once or twice. If you were being miserable, let's say your father brought you somewhere. Anyway, you hadn't got the sixth candy floss, so you're pretending to be miserable. And he'd say to you, take that look off your face. <laughs> and you go, like this, you know. <laughs> As a child, you could do this. You could literally take the misery off, pack it away somewhere, and be happy for the rest of the afternoon. So, take that look off your face. <laughs> look for the areas in your life where you refuse to be blissful. Now, what you'll find is this. It's not things like, if I may say so, 120 dying in Iraq. They're not the things that cause us to be miserable. It's the coffee being a bit cold. It's the pen leaking on the inside of your jacket. It's really big events like that. <laughs> Finding that your neck size no longer works. There's another 30 shirts that have to be bought. It's tiny little things that we become miserable about. If you were to examine last week, and let's say you became miserable, now we would make it with a small M, so you weren't sort of suicidal. 
with any sort of world-shattering event that caused you to become miserable. It's not. It's tiny little things. If you want tragedy, that's tragedy. To be truly blissful and to sell it for nothing. Did you ever buy your children a really decent present and they went and they sold it for a lollipop or something? <laughs> Say, look, Dad, look what I got. And you can't believe that they could sell it for something like a lollipop. But we're not even getting a lollipop. We actually sell bliss for misery. Can somebody explain that one to me, where the logic comes in? How you say, here, here, have a bucket of bliss and just give me the bucket of misery. And then we retain it. And if somebody says to you, snap out of you, now you don't understand. <laughs> You're so hard. <laughs> if somebody tells us that we have nothing to be miserable about, we take immense offence and get even more miserable. <laughs> You could do this now. You could decide to be blissful now and then never lose it again. And just decide that you're going to bring it into everything. And watch out then for how habit arises and attempts to take it away with this whole series of activities that you have condemned as misery producing. When you really begin to examine, you find they don't produce misery. You're the generator of it. And you just turn off the generator. You go on strike, which is very nice. Is that okay? Yeah, but just one final point. Yeah. But even like, yeah, to be blissful right now, of course, is the is the absolute that we want. To, and as you say, we get glimpses of it along the way. But like, if we have an overdraft of our thirty thousand or whatever, yeah. and we decide well, we're going to be blissful, what's going to be the driving force to make sure that that's cleared? Because no matter how far down the road it goes to yeah. 300,000, I've decided I'm going to be blissful anyway. But for those who are affected by yeah. this overdraft, such as my spouse, my kids, you know, it, it's, it's a lot more difficult. A miserable man will never clear an overdraft. All the energy that has been absorbed in his misery deprives him of the very means and intelligence to clear his overdraft. If you want to clear an overdraft, be blissful. No, but it's true. Well, I totally agree. Right? I totally agree. And I tell you another that. interesting thing. And if you want your bank manager to extend it, make sure you are blissful. <laughs> right? Because if he sees old misery guts coming in, who doesn't believe he can clear the 30, he's certainly not going to extend it to 50. It's very, very important this. Bliss doesn't mean inactivity. We have an idea of contentment as sort of like being a couch potato. Some sort of slob who's just eating chips, you know, watching a match and unable to move. And we think that's contentment. The interesting thing is when you're full of bliss, you're full of activity. That's why children move so much. They are impelled by bliss. So always face your so-called problems with total and complete bliss. That's the way to eliminate them. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> He's either defeated or blissful. I'm not your way. <laughs> I'm working on the blissful. I'll try it in the bank tomorrow. See how I get on. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Yes, this gentleman here. Just on a similar line, uh, with ambition, 
You were saying earlier that ambition and bliss don't go hand in hand. No. But to be ambitious or to encourage ambition, say in your children, yes. would that not be a good thing to do? No. No. <laughs> no. Ambition implies that it's not perfect now. That it will be better in the future. Once you achieve this, you will have improved or life will have improved. It's like encouraging children to be really, really, really excited about Christmas. What it means is you will be less happy until Christmas arrives. So that's the price you pay for being very, very, very happy on Christmas Day. You're less happy the rest of the days. If you are more happy at the weekend, I'm afraid you have to be less happy during the week. And you notice the ratio is five to two. <laughs> Ambition is not valid. But limitlessness is. So you can always say to a child, transcend the limits. Transcend that voice in your mind which says, I cannot do that. So you don't listen to that voice. You tell your children you are pure, perfect, and complete. And the secret in life is to express it in every way possible. If you want to call that ambition. But that's true ambition. It's not the ambition which is based on dissatisfaction with the present moment. It is activity based on total and complete happiness now. I so said, do you have any children? Yes. All right, okay. Well, let's take it when they were very young. Did you see them as perfect when you held the baby for the first time? Or did you say, is there a better one down the corridor? <laughs> you know. No, it was perfect. If it was perfect, did that stop you feeding it? No, it didn't. You fed it in its perfection. Did that stop you encouraging it to walk or to learn its ABCs? But without saying you're imperfect, all you were doing, I'm going to grant you being a wise father, as a wise father, you never would stop seeing them as perfect, but you would help them to express this perfection in many and varied ways. <laughs> never ever saying you're imperfect and you need to achieve this. That's a terrible thing to do. Children start off knowing their own perfection. And again, I've used this example before. But let's say, when you look in the mirror, do you see perfection? No. Very wise. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, I, I have yet to meet an adult who can look in the mirror and acknowledge perfection. We think God had an off day when he assembled this one. What ages are your children? Teenage. All right. But when they were very young, did you ever watch one of them looking at themselves in the mirror? Do you recognize that? All right. Do you see any criticism in their eyes as they looked at themselves? No. There's no criticism. That's why when, no matter which little girl you say to, you say you are the most beautiful little girl in the world, they say, yes. The interesting thing is, they're right, you see. They are right. They are the most beautiful girl in the world. So you, in the same way, either for yourself or for, for your children, is to encourage them to be blissful now, to acknowledge their own perfection now, but to ever, to ever be open to new ways and more limitless ways of expressing it. And then that's a fantastic life.
Because then you're enjoying it now, always now, rather than you've made a conditional on something being achieved in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Is that right? All right. I think there was a lady back there. Great. Thank you very much. You mentioned that life is, has pain and pleasure, and yeah. they work, and that's the way it is. But I can't see how bliss and pain work. I can see how bliss and pleasure would work. A blissful person you're describing seems to me still very elusive and abstract. I can't see how the, the pain and the, the bliss... How the pain and the bliss could be existing at the same time. Exactly. I can see how the pleasure and the bliss can exist at the same time. <laughs> you're, you're painting a picture yeah, of somebody exactly. who can almost walk on water, and I'm just looking at the reality of life and thinking yes, more realistically right. and practically. So it would be great if you could maybe... Okay. That. Well, first of all, if anybody's ever played a sport, and you play it competitively, and say there's a cup match, you can be in absolute bliss and considerable pain at the same time. The body can be completely and utterly drained. Another example would be if you've ever gone on a hike. You know when a hiker invites you to go on a hike with them? <laughs> One of these maniacs. And they drag you up this mountain and down that mountain. And you extend yourself. You know, there isn't an ounce of energy left in the body. But you know that immense satisfaction? immense satisfaction, even though the body is completely and utterly drained. It's hard to imagine how you can have pain and bliss, but the reason is because they don't belong to the same thing. The pain is only in the body. Now, if a person believes they are their body, when they get the flu, they become appalling people to live with. They become miserable people just because the body has the flu. If a person realizes they're not the body, well, then the body has the flu. Let's say you were married and your husband or your wife comes home and they say, you know, I find it more difficult to love you when I have the flu. You'd say, out. <laughs> yes, out this minute. It's nothing to do with the state of the body. If you only feel love when there's a good meal and moonlight, and that's nothing, that's just atmospheric pressures, that's all. It's nothing to do with pleasure or pain. It's in a different world. Pleasure and pain exist in the body. And you can have somebody who has got pleasure in the body or pain in the body, it doesn't stop them having love in their heart. Say, for example, your house is on fire and your children are trapped in the house. The body will not want to go into the house. There are no bodies which want to go into burning houses because bodies are fixated with pleasure and they hate pain. But if there's love in your heart, the heart will direct the body in. And the pain is nothing, absolutely nothing. The thing about it is this, if pain does not negate love, and so there are people who, who may be in constant pain, yet they say, I love my wife, or I love my husband, or I love myself, or whatever. If pain does not negate love, why would it negate bliss? Now, I'll tell you why we believe it negates bliss. 
because we think pleasure and bliss are associated. That's why. We don't think pain and love are associated. So we can say, oh yeah, I can see how there could be pain and there also could be love at the same time. We think that pain would negate bliss, but it wouldn't. All you do is you leave pain in the body. Leave pain in the body and love in your heart and bliss in yourself. Then there will be pain in the body, but it will not negate the bliss in yourself. Yes. I can definitely understand what you're saying, and that's you're describing more of like an acute pain or like a physical manifestation of that. Yes. But when it's more chronic, over a period of months or you know six months, you know maybe a depression or a period of anxiety, that goes beyond what you're talking well, what, about. So if you're talking about depression or anxiety, we then we have moved from pain to sorrow. Mm. But you know, again, and I just we just take the pain bit first of all. You say like long-term pain. Well, what is long-term pain in eternity? You know when you go away on your holidays for a weekend and it rains on Saturday? You think, oh, it's ruined. <laughs> whole thing is ruined. Because it's one out of two days. Now, let's say you went away for a year, you know, backpacking, and it rains on the Saturday, the first Saturday. You think, look, for God's sake, there's another 364 days. We need to get things into perspective. In eternity, even 50 years of pain is nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a blink of an eye. In eternity. That's the way. If you then move to sorrow and depression, these sort of things, what you're trying to imagine is the coexistence of sorrow and depression and bliss. Well, they do coexist, but they can't be experienced simultaneously. If sorrow is being experienced, it covers the experience of bliss. The bliss is still there, but it's not experienced. The reality is the blissful man or woman does not experience sorrow. And again, I've told this before, but I set a rule for myself about 15 or 20 years ago that misery would not last in this life more than five seconds at any time. Three seconds was for indulgence in it, because I'm Irish and sort of <laughs> sentimental, and two minutes was for dissolving or two seconds, I should say, was for dissolving. So three seconds for indulgence and two seconds for dissolving. And the interesting thing is, it's absolutely possible to dissolve any misery in five seconds. In fact, you can do it in two seconds. Misery doesn't have to last any length of time. If it does last, it lasts because of indulgence or ignorance. That's why. It's a bit like an illness. If you don't have the medicine, the cure won't arise. Whenever you're miserable, well, you can ask yourself, what is faulty in my understanding right now? You see, we never look to dissolve. We say it was caused by the fact that that man pulled in in front of me as I was going into town. Now, there's no cure for men pulling in in front of you going into town. They're never going to make men who don't do these things. But there is a cure for your misery, for your reaction. You can cure that reaction. You could have compassion in your heart for somebody who drives so ignorantly. And it wouldn't it be a pity to be born a human being and not master the art of loving driving? It's because, as I said, that you are linking the pain and the bliss, that you find it hard to imagine how they coexist. 
but pain only resides in the body. And you find that bliss resides in yourself. That's the key to it. If you practice this, if at times when there is pain, you go deep within yourself, you'll find you completely transcend. An example that's within our experiences, let's say you have you know, an appalling headache. What happens when you go asleep? Does the appalling headache bother you? Not at all. Because at a low level of consciousness, it doesn't register. Is that all right? At the middle level of consciousness, it absolutely registers. Well, there's another interesting fact. At the highest level of consciousness, it doesn't register either. It's just a headache. I was told this when I was early in the school about this, about pain, that if you really want to transcend pain, then do not avoid it. The avoidance exaggerates. You know, when we try to avoid things, it makes them more and more burdensome. Anyway, I was told this about pain, and the way God granted me teeth, it meant that I have to go to a dentist very frequently. So I didn't have to wait too long until I had to go to this dentist. And I don't particularly enjoy the treatment. Anyway, I decided I'm going to apply philosophy here. I'm not going to avoid the pain. Now, this is way, way back. Anesthetics in those days were pretty rough. I think, you know, they, they sort of held back on the amount they gave you. So you could definitely experience what was going on. Anyway, so the dentist gets his drill and he puts it against a tooth. And you can hear that sound as it begins to grind into the tooth. And so I put my attention exactly where the tip of that drill was grinding into the tooth. And you know what I discovered? Right in the center of the pain is absolute peace. The very, very center. No movement, no disturbance, no nothing. And if you want an analogy, it's like you know those, um, you know the fairground, what do you call those spinning things that you... You, go, you get on a horse or something like that. What do you call those things? Merry-go-round, thank you. Merry-go-round, right? Where does the guy who runs the, the merry-go-round, where does he stand after the thing starts? In the middle. Why does he stand in the middle? Because there's least movement there. The maximum movement is at the periphery. The least movement is closer to the center. You know, at the very, very, very center, there's no movement. None at all. So if you get right to the center, the center of your own being, you will find no movement. Absolute peace. Absolute bliss. And the further you move out, the more movement you get. That's why to live in the body is the worst place to live. Will I live in Dublin or, you know, will I live in Ireland? But the real question is, am I going to live in the body? Am I going to live in the mind? Am I going to live in the heart or am I going to live in myself? Yes. And just gentlemen back here. You spoke about children. Yes. And the difference between children and adult. Yes. At what age would you suggest that we change from being the child who is blissful and then become this angst-ridden adult almost. Yes. Well, I would suggest that you don't change, first of all. <laughs> but at what age does this happen? Yes. 
as far as I can remember, it happens in the second year after two. The child, for the first two years of its life, lives in a different world than you and I live in. It lives in a spiritual world, a divine world. It doesn't see itself as a body at all. Children don't even uh, know they have a gender for a long time. That's why you can put little boys and little girls into baths together. You can't put big boys and big girls into baths together because they reckon, I have a gender. But little boys and little girls don't even recognize that they're male, female, or anything. For the first two years of their lives, they live in the spiritual world. They live in bliss. And even when they cry, it's only the body crying. It's an absence of language. They've got to inform you in some way that something is wrong. So it cries out. But what you'll notice with, a, say, a child crying, the minute it stops crying, the whites of its eyes are totally white. Whereas when you and I cry, we look like a rabbit for about a week. Because <laughs> it doesn't actually affect the child. It just cries with a far greater enthusiasm than you and I can cry. But when it stops, it really does stop. We just run out of tears, that's all. But we're still crying on the inside, type of thing. So, for two years, the child lives in itself. He lives in bliss and love and peace and all these wonderful things. However, the play must go on, and so it comes out of it. Your job is to keep reminding it so that it never forgets its real self. And the best way you can do that, by living example, not true words, but by being yourself. And if you want a really interesting and sort of amazing little story, I think I might have told this one before as well, but I, I've heard it from a number of sources and I'm, I'm assuming it's true, about this little boy, there was a newborn baby into the family. And the, the boy was about, I think, four. And he seemed to have a fixation with wanting to go into the room where the baby was. A really strong fixation to go in on his own where the baby was. And the parents initially didn't allow him, but they were so curious as to why they put in you know, these baby monitors, these little telecommunication systems for babies. So they put the little monitor in with the baby and they had the one in the sitting room and they let your man free. So after a while he goes upstairs and he goes into the bedroom and you know what he whispers to the little baby? He's only four years old. And he says, will you tell me about God? Because I'm starting to forget. Imagine that. Well, your job as an adult is to be God on earth so that the child never forgets. Because every little child just wants to be mummy or daddy. And it would be an appalling thing if they turned out like you. <laughs> we'll make this the last one, is that all right? Yeah. Thank you, Shane. Um, just a few observations. Uh, Wordsworth and his intimations on immortality had that thought that the child up to the age of two oh, right. remembered where he came. They were very blissful. 
And the other point I, I wanted to make was that the ego loves drama and the ego loves control. And the ego can keep control by throwing us back into the past or into the future. Absolutely. Because when we're in the past and the future, we're working out of the unconscious, as if we're working from the conscious. So my, my question was that, should we be the observers and watch when the ego is rising? Because there is a moment when, if you are the observer, you can see the ego and stop it from going into this huge drama because the ego spends its time weaving stories and keeping you out of the present. Therefore, the important thing I find, which I've only begun to do recently, is to observe the ego. I even did it today. I, I was quite blissful. Yeah. I was having a bath. And then I started weaving the story. My sister has recently died, and I was yeah. to go back and weave the story, and I just said to the ego, no, 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 you know. And the third thing mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you was, our point I wanted to make was, those people who were killed yesterday in Virginia, Yes. is it right to look upon that as that that was the part of their drama in this embodiment? Is that how I make sense of that? Well, I think, I'll just take that last point. There are many ways to look at that last point. And there was a sage called Nisargadatta Maharaj from India, a remarkable man. And uh, he was asked, well, what do you do when people come to you and they're grieving? about, say, the loss of a loved one. And he said, well, I, I tell them that perhaps it was for the best, and uh, they're up in heaven now looking down on you, and they're, you know, they're, they're where they should be, and they, they had a good life, and they did their bit and all that. He said, well, that keeps them happy. Now, he didn't believe a word of it. So, in a way, a lot of these things simply appease our nature. So I can give you different ways. If you're a Christian, and you believe that these were good people, then they're in heaven. So what are you crying about? They're having all the fun while you're having to listen to me. You've got a longer prison sentence on this earth. You're not ready. The only reason you're not in heaven, and I'm just going to use it within the Christian teaching, the only reason you're not in heaven is you're not ready yet. They were obviously ready. They've already passed the exam. All right, you're still rewriting various paragraphs. <laughs> and if you looked at it like that, where's the misery? You could say, well, there's the misery for all those who are left behind and who love them. But if they loved them, they'd let them go. Why wouldn't you let somebody go to bliss? Only a mean person would say, no, I want you to stay with me. You know, if your child wanted to emigrate to Australia and said, I can think I can find bliss in Australia, you should bring them to the airport. You should be delighted. My belief is, discover the reason for your own life first. Work out that one. Then you are of some use to others. Otherwise, there's just too many different ways of looking at events like that. Maybe we need to be taught that life is precious. So lives have to be taken for the rest of us to wake up, to stop living as if we were eternal in the wrong sense. That life is very, very precious, that every moment is very, very precious. So maybe we need people to die young and to die tragically so that we do wake up and realize that, you know, every moment is precious. So you can look at it from many ways. My experience is this. 
that there's no such thing as a bad event unless you let it be. So you can take all of these events and they can all be your teacher. They can really, really teach you. And, you know, when things cause me grief in their absence, I'm simply being taught that I have not loved truly. Because if I had loved truly, I would let go fully. We leave it at that. Thank you very much.